Well, once again, Muslim terrorists a terrorist have slaughtered innocent Islamic people and extremists now control terrorists. much of the country. Their brand of justice is brutal and deadly. Newsflash, America. These Muslim extremists are, uh, are alive and well. They are not dead. And their video is not gratuitous. And it certainly is not irrelevant. It is a warning. Welcome to the Truth About Muslims podcast, the official podcast of the Zwemer Center for Muslim Studies, where we help to educate you beyond the media. Here are your hosts, Howard and Trevor. Uh, hey. You- <laughs> what the heck? I don't know why. Yeah. I'm like, I don't know why hey. I don't know why every time it's like that. <laughs> All right, you're listening to Truth About Muslims podcast. Thank you guys so much for being here with us. And we've got a special guest in the studio today, Mr. Brady is what we're going to call him. We're not going to give his last name because he's uh, doing a lot of his work in Africa. Uh, He has spent 20 years of his life in Africa. He spent more time in Africa than not. And uh, he's going to be returning here soon and has graciously agreed to sit down with us and kind of help explain what's happening on the continent of Africa. This is funny because every time I think about Africa, I think about like us being ignorant. You're just like, uh, Africa, like it's like a small city, (laughs) but it's like, it's like an entire continent. So people are like, Oh, you're, you're from Africa, but like they're very, there's actually countries there. (laughs) The diversity is quite insane. I mean, I don't know if you've ever seen any of the documentaries, like where the guys drive their, uh, dirt bikes from South Africa all the way to Cairo. You, You just see that that continent has, a huge amount of, you know, ecological diversity, geographical diversity, ethnic diversity, religious diversity. I mean, it is so complex that, Brady, we are super excited to have you here to make it all make sense for us. So, welcome, welcome. <laughs> Thank you very much. So, uh, let's let's kind of kick it off. How exactly um, did you end up in Africa? I mean, you just don't meet a whole lot of people that, that spend their time in Northern Africa these days. So, how did that come to be? Um, actually I grew up there. Uh, my dad is a doctor, missionary doctor. And so I, when I was four years old, he moved our family over and I grew up, uh, in Kenya. And, uh, during my years in Kenya, I actually met my wife over there and, wow. uh, yeah, you know, good place to go shopping for a wife. No, <laughs> is it? I'm okay. just joking. <laughs> the dowries are way too high. <laughs> Now, your your wife is actually American as well. She is. She is. Uh, her father and, or her parents were working in Uganda, in the country next door. And we both attended the same boarding school and started dating and uh, were married a few years later. So th- that brings new meaning to missionary dating. That's right. <laughs> that's, that's right. Yeah. yeah. So, uh, and I also hear you're a pretty good rugby player. Oh, I enjoy a good rugby game. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I, I've, I've wanted to... Uh, try my my game of rugby but i'm pretty sure i'd get hurt yeah you're a triathlon person you're really small you're very very small i've seen rugby games and they're not small yeah i don't know how i would do probably not well <laughs> so uh help us understand a little bit of the complexity here um when we look at africa what we see in the news is chaos i mean in one word we we think chaos we see ebola we see Boko Haram, we see Al-Shabaab, we see kidnapped uh, girls, we see just, you know, killing, violence, chaos, darkness. What is it, what do you see in Africa? I appreciated your comments earlier. Um, when you talk about Africa, you're talking about an immense land. You're talking about um, diversity beyond scale. And so I, I really want to pull back from that. And let's not talk about Africa. 
let's talk specifically about certain regions. Um, because we know it, when something happens, and let me use the example of the United States, something that happens here, you know, you don't get all worried uh, about something that happened in California or in Seattle. Yeah, we That's, don't think about California. No. no. <laughs> so I, 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 let's back off of, let's say, the United States of America. Let's, you know, talk about our region and our people and the specific culture and the things that are going on in that region. It, it really helps. But when you lump it all into one continent, how are you ever going to... It's too much. Consolidate. Yeah. Yeah. You can't. So let's back off of that. And when you start looking at a region and how far these countries have gone in such a short amount of time, um, it's mind boggling. Okay. Stop right there. What do you mean? Like, what have you seen that they've come so far? Because like, you know how Trevor had just said, like, it's like, you know, like we, we just see media bites. I want to hear what's happening on the ground, like what's really going on. So you just said they've come a long way. So what does that mean? Like, explain that. The majority of people in Kenya who have a bank account don't have a brick and mortar bank account. It's all on their phone. What? They have pioneered mobile banking. The United States is so far behind Kenya when it comes to mobile banking. Okay, a little bit of mind-blowing here. You're suggesting that there are places in Africa that have superseded the technological <laughs> connectivity that we have here in the United States. We are learning how Kenya is doing it. Nice. So, I, I mean, and we're talking, okay, we're talking a country that 60 years, I mean, they just got their independence 60 years ago. I mean, the movement and the mass education that happened in these years, the way they have stood up and have created a, a, a flourishing democracy is amazing. Wow. It's amazing. We have lessons to learn from Africa. All right. I'm, I'm liking where this is going. What are some other lessons that we have to learn from Africa? I'm thinking particularly in the idea of missions in the church and theology. I've been doing a lot of reading with African theologians and finding great comfort in some of the things that are being said, some of the ways in which they view God. How can we learn from the spiritual worldviews of Africans um, as Americans and Westerners? That's a really good question. <laughs> you, you don't have to have an answer. I was just something I was wondering. <laughs> I was going to say, like, wow, we just went really deep. I thought this wasn't going to be deep. <laughs> <laughs> well, I, I, I was just okay. thinking spiritual worldview. You know, Brady, when you're there, is there things that you see where you're like, wow, I'm learning a lot from the ways in which the way Africans view the world that um, Americans don't, Westerners don't. Right, like the church needs to pick up in the West. Well, I, this has been harped on before, and so why not? I'll jump on the bandwagon. But <laughs> Bring the, the issue of community. We talk yeah. about it, but when it actually comes down to dollars and cents, when your friends in need in America, you're not the one who's going over and housing them and feeding them and you know, doing life together. We have insurance. We have, you know, savings. We have figured it out so that we do not have to be dependent on one another. You know, none of my life is so intertwined with another that his success becomes mine. We've, it's just who we are. We've I, created ourselves independent. I've never thought about insurance or savings or anything like that. I mean, independence doesn't just mean... Um, that we can, you know, do any everything on our own, but it means that we're really separating ourselves from other people. 
That's I've never thought about it that way. That's really cool. So thank you for jumping on that bandwagon. <laughs> yeah, I'm, I'm thinking just in the terms of retirement. I mean, we tend to do retirement so our kids don't have to take care of us. Yeah, yeah. And it, that, that that's a very Western kind of a new idea. When you think about it, the rest of the world is thinking, why wouldn't my kids want to take care of me? Is there something wrong between me and my kids in the future? I remember telling my students one day that often when parents get old, they move into a home with other old people and uh, the children continue on with their lives. And even the children often do not contribute to the care of their parents whether it be financially or socially, whatever it might be. And just the jaws of the students just drop. And it's just, it's like you have shunned your relationship, your duty to your own parents. What sin could be greater than that? Wow. So here we are figuring life out and we've got it so that we can continue our lives and succeed financially in many ways, but they look at us and say, you've lost it. You've lost the true meaning of life, um, which is that dependence on one another. That is that love and care and cost that comes from community. Um, so man, we have a lot to learn. Um, yeah, from the African church, uh, from the, the idea of taking community to a whole new level and putting um, putting meat on the words that we say. And I think it needs to come from within the church. Um, like we should be the ones that are really showing that first. Right? I, I think so. It just makes sense. It's kind of what we've been taught, but we don't, we don't do that. That's right. Yeah. It needs to come from within the church first. All right. I have, I have another question. I know that's kind of switching gears. Sorry for Trevor's deep, Deep, deep question. Um, <laughs> I, I, I'm ignorant about most things when it comes to, you know, like different regions in the world. I've traveled a lot, but there's just so much, you know, and I don't read all the news. But like, so this Sudanese conflict in northern, southern Sudan, like it just seems really confusing because like the, the media is like throwing around names of, you know, groups and they're fighting and it doesn't really make it clear why they're fighting. Could you kind of explain all that stuff? Because I, you know, I don't. Yeah, know all that stuff. Just all of it. Just all of it. it out right in, now. in like two minutes. Two Could you minutes. make it really pithy? So Give we us go the, to the next question. Reader's Digest version <laughs> of what's going on with all of the conflict. <laughs> okay, not all, but just your take on it. Okay, thank you, Trevor. Wow, good friend. <laughs> wow, that's that's good. A uh, little bit of history. So you got a little strip along the Nile where mm. we're talking two thousand years ago. Um, you have Christianity spread down the Nile and into Ethiopia. Uh-huh. So you have churches in Ethiopia that are 2,000 years old. All right, so they trace back their Christianity. They, they're the oldest churches in the world. Okay, so this is one of those moments where you're like, what? We, <laughs> yeah. we don't think of Christianity and its sort of cradle of having any association with Africa, but we have to remember, you know, Augustine, Augustine, North Africa, Egypt. Yeah. This is, this is sort of one of the cradles of the spread of Christianity. Largest libraries, um, the, where the real thought came, where the Septuagint was translated. I mean, you just, man, you just have so much history there. And then that spread down into Sudan, um, and started the Nubian kingdom, 
basically the kings converted to Christ uh, from missionaries and held on to that. And we're actually a very well-developed kingdom called the Meroe Kingdom. Well, uh, when the spread of Islam happened, it came by storm and it took over Sudan and it, northern Sudan has been Islamic ever since. Wait, wait. Ever since then? Ever since. Yeah, so we're talking the 900s around there. Wow. Okay. So, and the the type of Islam that it is, um, is um, related to Wahhabism from Saudi Arabia. So they take a lot of their cues from Saudi Arabia, look up to them, and are very, very conservative. So if you're wondering right now, like Wahhabism, like what is that? That would be the ultra conservative, um, strictest interpretations of law, strictest uh, way of dress, strictest way of dealing with, you know, stoning for adultery, removal of a hand for stealing. Don't think of Sharia law as being this one sort of way of looking at life. There are different interpretations and that Wahhabism is by far the most uh, strict and often violent. Mm-hmm. So, so for example, you. when Saudi Arabia actually expelled Osama bin Laden, um, in 95. Where did he go? Sudan. Sudan. Yes, he did. I've uh, actually driven through his farms where he had uh, started farming uh, sorghum there. Um, but that just shows you how conservative it is and then how welcoming it is to very conservative uh, Muslims. So right now, it, the label, we don't use Wahhabism or Wahhabism, but uh, Salafist mm. is the name that they give themselves. A very conservative. Um, I would walk into a store in Khartoum and a, into a Salafist store, and they would greet me, but they wouldn't shake my hand. They would not look at my wife or ever shake her hand. They're very, very conservative. So when you're thinking of Salafist, you're thinking of uh, current ISIS, Al-Qaeda, all of the people that we talked about in the history of Islamic fundamentalism, all with that that stream of thought with the Salafism. So the the most radical sects that we see today that are very theologically minded, they are coming from that same stream. So just cueing people in as we go. Go ahead. That's good. It, and and the, the goal, really, of a, of a Salafist is that the kingdom of God is here, that it is the duty and the responsibility of Muslims to spread Islam. And they're given many different ways to do that. And in Sudan, um, the goal, the southern part of Sudan was largely ignored, undeveloped. It, uh, the people themselves are uh, black. Um, they're non-religious. Well, they're not non-religious. They're um, pantheist. Uh, they're animist. They believe uh, in the spirits, in the rocks and trees. And so Islam tried to spread south, and it did that economically. It did that um, by sending imams down and planting mosques. But then it did it militarily. Um, Quick question before we hit that. You said that uh, the southern Sudanese were black. What does that mean for the northern Sudanese? Think think Arab. Think uh, brown. Think Egyptian. So they're not the same? No. No, no, no. Sudan's okay. very different. Yep. I think this is one of those times where we are we just remember that the idea of drawing nation states and geographical boundaries 
oftentimes didn't take any consideration of tribal and ethnic identities. And so just because you have a country doesn't necessarily mean that the entire country will be the same group of people. So you're saying in the North, we primarily have Arabs, and in the South, uh, primarily black Africans. That's correct. All right. So the the strategy is to go uh, promote uh, Islam through planning mosques, giving some you know financial incentive, taking care of people, providing food, education, all of those things. And it didn't take so much? Right. So often a Salafist will often uh, support a Quranic school. And that's, you, you know, you go and you memorize the Quran over several years. Well, the Southerners were not interested in this. Um, Southerners live in a very fertile land. Some people say that if you were to plant, um, say, wheat in South Sudan, you could feed the entire continent of Africa. It's that fertile. I I never thought of it that way. Like, I always thought, you know, it's like desert or, you know, like, I don't know. I just, you know, me, American-minded, but just, okay, keep going. So that's northern Sudan. Northern Sudan is very dry. It is fertile along the Nile, but then you have large areas where they don't have fertile land. And so the south beckoned them. And then Chevron found oil. So the show wouldn't be possible without sponsors. And this week's sponsors are... Zwammer Center. Zwammer Center. Zwammer Center. The Zwammer Center. Zwammer Center. And what does the Zwammer Center do? Talks about Muslims and tells them on the computer that we love you. Very nice. The Zwemmer Center equips the church to reach Muslims. The Zwemmer Center has been educating people about reaching Muslims before it was cool. Whoa. Everything changes. Yes, it does. So Black the- gold, Texas tea. <laughs> That's in Texas, man. Well, we Sudanese tea. <laughs> We actually call oil the black snake because... There's one I haven't heard before. It is... Okay, there's so much benefit that comes from oil, but there's such a high cost wow. to it that the Southerners have started calling it a black snake because wow. of the pain that it has caused them. Yeah, so give, go into detail there. What, is, what do you mean? So North Sudan decides, we want that oil. We want that land. So what they've done now is... What they do is they outfit um, Antonovs, which are Russian airplanes, and they have a large bay door in the back. So mid-flight, they'll open that door, and they fill 55-gallon drums full of explosives and push them out on markets so that what they're doing is they're chasing away the people from that land. Now, it sounds like you're saying uh, these northern Muslims, Arab Muslims, brown Muslims, are flying strangely enough, Russian aircraft and bombing southern black Muslims. So you have Muslims killing Muslims. This isn't necessarily theological as much as it is about skin color. Is that a fair assessment? In some areas, for the example Darfur, you have Arab Muslims killing black Muslims. Now, in South Sudan, you would just have Muslims killing non-Muslims. So it depends Got on it. the region that you go. And the, it, I mean, economics, religion, um, tribe is really a driver in all of this. And it's hard to overstate the identity that comes from tribe. 
Yeah, you had mentioned before we started this interview, we were I was asking you about uh, Northern Sudan, Southern Sudan. Like, it's the same country. So if the Northern Sudan, Sudanese are, you know, the actual government, why the, the Southern Sudan would be their land. So why wouldn't they just go over and, and take what they want? Because it's their country. Uh, and then you had mentioned it was different tribes and how that was totally totally different so kind of can, can you kind of explain that because i think as americans we don't get that except for loosely because of our states mm-hmm. you know in in the u.s but could you kind of explain that texas might get it <laughs> texas might get it. texas definitely yeah, i think it. they do get that yeah. they're and, definitely a tribe and isn't that interesting that texas has its own identity and it's kind of it's socially drilled into them from when they're a kid you are from texas don't mess with texas that's right and it's, you know, it's, it's actually part of their culture, their upbringing. And that's exactly how it is in South Sudan. So that you, we meet people along the road and I know exactly which tribe they're from because they have scars on their face. Each tribe has unique scars. So, for example, the Dinka tribe has six lateral scars across their forehead. Whoa. When they're 9, 10, 11 years old, They are sat down, and they're not allowed to cry while this happens. But a razor blade or a piece of grass is used, and they slice six lines from ear all the way across your forehead to the other ear. Six lines. Child doesn't make a sound. And then ash is rubbed in there so that the wound doesn't heal. It heals into a bump. So I can from a good distance see these six lines across this man's head and I know exactly that he is a dink so I can greet him according to his tribe but when you're nine years old you're given this identity and you're told you are a dinka. you will marry a dinka. you will protect the dinka. you will you know be a dinka forever you can't hide those scars it is on your forehead and that's your identity just the thought of the process of creating that identity in a visual way that is so in some ways seemingly traumatic you know and then to think of it in terms of that identity it sounds like you're saying supersedes all other identities nationalistic identity religious identity political identity you, you name it the the ethnic or tribal identity is the the, the top that's that is yeah it's the foundation of your identity and you wear it wherever you go so it influences all of your decisions who you're going to stay with you know that idea of community that we talked about earlier so deep so you can be a dinka man and literally walk across the country and every town you go in you simply walk up to a man with the same scars on his head he will house you he will feed you he will take care of you until you need to go. Okay, so this brings to light that documentary. If we'll, we'll put it in the show notes, the uh, children of Darfur that that come to uh, the the Lost Boys of Sudan is what it's called. National Geographic did it, and they come. And when they ask them about what it's like in America, he says Americans are not friendly. You you cannot go up to somebody's house, even though you're all Americans. And he said, but in Sudan. If you are lost, you can ask somebody, can you show me the way? Do you need someone to walk with you? And he said, but in America, you'll call the police and say, who is this man? Why are they at my house? And eventually they're told by the community that shopkeepers 
are intimidated by them traveling in groups, and so they're not allowed to walk together anymore. And of course, we're thinking they have such freedom now here in America, but in some ways, they feel like they're completely trapped. They don't have a sense of identity anymore. They can't even walk with their brothers. We don't even think about that. Right. All right, so this show wouldn't be possible without sponsors. And at this point in the show is where, if you want to partner with us, we would put your ad. So if you want to be a part of the show, you, you want like, to partner with us. You like what we're doing. You want to be on our team, what have you. Bring this show to the world. Then email us and let us know. So, so you're saying that these Sudanese uh, in the South, they're, they're not going to be watching TV wondering what's happening. Well, they will, but uh, not to the degree of they're wondering what's happening with the nationalistic government. They're, they're really identified with that tribe. So when the national, national government comes down and says, you know, we're, we're trying to push you guys off the land so that we can take this land, they're just like, no way. Like, that's just, no, I don't have any allegiance to you really. Um, you know, that, like, that's not going to happen. Is that what you're saying? Absolutely. Yeah. If you try and take Adinka's land from him, oh, man, you're ready for a fight. Now, these are men who, um, they're like Davids. Like, they protect their cows from lion. You know, they, these are serious warriors. Lions. Lions. You know, so this is, this is stuff that you don't fool around with. These are men. Warriors. So, it, I mean, the North tried and tried. They, they even labeled it a jihad. So they recruited people. I, after you graduated high school, you then need to go and serve with the military, although it's not the formal military. You join the jihad and you go and fight against the Southerners to move them off their land. This is by law. Yes. You can't get into university unless you showed that you had fought. Oh my gosh. So you have people in North Sudan, they're like, I don't want to fight. They, you know, they don't have any vendetta against these people in the South, but they can't get into university unless they do. And so you're saying that this is economically driven. They want, they want the oil, yes. they want the fertile land, but they're labeling it religious. Absolutely. I think it's crazy just to think it's not just economics. It's, it's ecologically driven. They want, they want grazing land. Mm-hmm. We don't even think in those terms anymore. But we're, we, I think if you were in even the United States years back, that might make a little more sense where grazing was an issue. But in, in the Sudan, that is the major issue, that there's no grazing land up north. It's in the desert. they got to go south, and they're grazing on land that's not theirs, and it causes a lot of uh, conflict. That's right. So how do the... For thinking of Darfur, for instance, you said it was Muslim killing Muslim. How do the black Muslims respond when they see their northern supposed brothers bombing them? And this is, this is where you see God opening up and working in ways that we could never anticipate or plan for or create ourselves. But Darfur 10, 15 years ago was one of the least reached places on the earth, just 100% Muslim. And now because of this, the the Fur people and different tribes are fleeing to the south, those that are black and being persecuted. And what we're finding is they are extremely open to the gospel. They've just lost everything, physically, but then also spiritually. Their own brothers have just tried to kill them. 
and so they're they're spiritually hungry and when we show them the gospel they stand up and they say this is truth wow this is life and so we're seeing seeing for the first time in history a four church this is exciting what what happens with that tribal identity though Brady that's what comes to my mind immediately is does the gospel supersede does the the Christian identity the identity of the global church supersede that ethnic identity I mean even coming from an American perspective I think that we have not quite figured that out yet um as long as people have been Christian and multiple generations of Christians, people sometimes don't see themselves as Christian first, American second. And that's just for a nationalistic identity, which I don't think in this sense is as strong as maybe this tribal ethnic identity. Do you see the gospel penetrating, uh, changing that identity where they really could see tribes loving each other that historically have not? Yeah, I you know I've struggled with this thinking you know how how would Americans relate to this, but I, I we do have something that's denominationalism. Oh. <laughs> what said, have you done, Brady? <laughs> Don't go there. No, no, go there, please. <laughs> I know, it, but that hey, these are brothers and sisters in Christ, but they automatically judge one another right. will either relate or socialize or not socialize with one another right. based on their denomination right and when it comes down to actually working together oh don't no, go. ain't gonna happen i know isn't that crazy or it happens but just really limitedly you know like they're just not really willing to you know give themselves over to one another you know in community yeah and so then we look oh those africans that's just terrible what they're doing <laughs> It's called just being deceived, I think. Well, I, it's it's we're a little bit blind to that until you get to come here and point it out to us. But uh, <laughs> especially with that word denominationalism, thank you. Well, I I I think that's the closest I can relate to it. No, that's spot on. Keep going. So the church, yes, the church in Africa struggles with this because they mm-hmm. do. They have a tribal identity that is literally scarred across their head. So yeah. when it comes to the church, they worship in a different language. They worship to a different style of music. All right? So they, that is a barrier. It is there. I'm not going to lie. It's a reality in the churches that we work with. Okay, wait. So you're saying, like, for instance, you, you mentioned the Dinka people, right? Mm-hmm. So they would have their own church, and they would worship in a certain way that another people group wouldn't? Yeah, fascinatingly enough, we worked with uh, two tribes, and you know, different missionaries, actually both with the same organization, but different missionaries came to those people. So the one tribe that worked among the Uduk completely banned any sort of instruments, including the drum. Huh? And they did this because they saw drums being used to call up the spirits. Um. And so they made a hard and fast line. There will be no drum beating in the church just so that they could separate themselves from the tribes. Well... Other missionaries went to another tribe called the Maban. And they brought extra drums. <laughs> <laughs> you basically, yeah. So they came in the different approach of let's redeem the yeah. drum beating. And the Maban are unbelievable drum beaters. And so now they're both actually the same denomination called the Sudan Interior Church. But one beats drums and one doesn't because of the history 
of the missionaries that came. And wow. So it, it's exciting because one of my students actually from the Uruk tribe wrote his thesis, his bachelor's thesis on should Uruk beat drums now? Because he's thinking over this issue, he's reading scripture. Right. Scripture says you can use instruments. Right, so make he, a joyful noise. Exactly. So yeah. he's coming at it. Okay, I see the point that right. the missionaries brought, but this is our faith. And we're, we need to rethink this issue. I think that puts a lot of pressure, I think, sometimes on the, the missionary. Have you ever felt like, man, I, w- I want to be certain that I'm not exporting my American Christianity to Africa? I mean, granted, you've spent more of your life in Africa than America, so that you've got a little bit of a leg up there, I think. But for, <laughs> for some listeners that are thinking, I've wanted to be a missionary in Africa, I'm sure right now they're going, I- I'd be afraid I'd export my own you know, way of doing Christianity. It's a, Trevor, it is a miracle that Christianity has taken on such, um, that, that the, let me speak for the Kenyan and Sudanese church has taken on such an identity of their own with Christianity for how much missionaries brought culture with their Christianity. I, I'm just so impressed that Kenyans have been able to shed the culture more and more and grab onto the heart of the gospel which is exciting. That's fantastic. Uh, so as far as identity goes with the, with the six you know, scars uh, uh, in some of these tribes, they have all these different types of markings. When they come together, it, do you find that there is still this uh, um, acceptance that, uh, that would be foreign to the U.S., like with Baptists getting together with Episcopalians and vice versa and Methodists? And mm-hmm. Would you find that, that, that they're more accepting than, than even we are as denominations? That's a good question. And I would say as long as things are going well, they'll kind of keep operating in their own domains. Does that make sense? So here, if, you know, everything is going well in the church, the church just kind of does its own thing. It doesn't need anybody else. So it's going to operate. It's going to have its own youth group and it's going to have its own outreach and it's not going to work with other denominations because things are going well. But when things get rough, that's when you start stripping away start stripping away denomination, you start stripping away tribe, and it goes back to those people who have been touched by the gospel, the scars of Christ overcome the scars on your forehead. I'm just thinking about those terms, that idea of being able to present the gospel, looking at the scars of Christ as being your identity marker. I mean, when you said that, I literally felt a little bit of chills, Mm -hmm. because that doesn't mean a lot to me, I've never thought of scars as an identity marker. Mm-hmm. But to someone in Sudan, they could see the scars of Christ as being, this is your new identity right. in Christ. That would be powerful. It is. It is. And it's powerful. We had two old guys. They're the oldest guys in our class sitting in the front seat. I'm sorry, the front desk of, of the class, um, Gabriel and Zachariah. And Gabriel's from the New Era tribe and Zachariah's from the Dinka tribe. So these are actually the two largest tribes in Sudan, and they are, they're basically brothers, but they're enemies of one another. They steal cattle from each other. They kill each other's people. What? In, in some of the Nuer tribe areas, in order to kind of become a man, you go steal cattle and kill a Dinka man. No. What? Yeah. So that's part of Wait, your... now? Yeah. You're not talking about centuries ago. You're talking about now. Well, I'm sure it happened centuries ago, too. 
This is it. <laughs> oh my gosh. Wait, they're in the and what are they sitting in class for? So okay, so I, I teach at a Bible college and these <laughs> are, are two pastors sitting what? next to each See, other. See some I, I also teach at a Bible college, <laughs> but I don't think I've ever had any students sitting next to each other that I think would probably have come from this sort of uh, history. This tension. This <laughs> is a serious tension. Okay, I'm dying to hear. Keep going. Tell us okay, you're in a Bible college, you're teaching, there's two students in the front. They traditionally like two gray beards. These are older guys. Right, yeah. and they you know have killed Okay, okay, keep going. All keep right. going. So, it, okay, December 15th of 2013, the vice president and the president of South Sudan, President Adinka, vice president, is a new heir. Same tribes as these students that are sitting in this front row. Okay. There is a massive um, disagreement that turns violent. And the Dinka soldiers in Juba go and begin to slaughter oh, men man. who are new heir. Hmm. Nuer find about this, find out in their homeland, round up any Dinkas there and begin to slaughter them. No. This, so since... This is last year, 2013. Well, it's 2015, but... Yeah. yeah. So over the last 14 months, we've seen well over 10,000 people killed simply because of their identity. Oh, my this. So when this fighting broke out, Gabriel is in town. Gabriel lives in Dinka land. The place where the college is is Dinka Land. Gabriel's a new heir. This is not good. Okay. The police yeah. police come to his home, grab him, and take him to the police station. Wait, the Dinka police. The Dinka police. Oh. Which, at this point, police is relative to I'm Dinka. Their tribe. Right. Okay. So this is where people disappear. Yeah. Oh, gosh. So, you want to talk about police corruption all of a sudden, throw some tribal identity in the mix, and it gets right. real shady real quick okay so Gideon so Gabriel goes oh, Gabriel to, yep Gabriel goes to prison and his classmates find out about it they come to their Dinka brothers who are the policemen mm. and say we know this man mm. this is a man of God his identity in Christ supersedes his identity as a tribe so we are willing to stand for this man please let him go wow and based on their testimony Gabriel was released, and they helped to get him out of Dinka land, in a sense, to escort him out so that he would not be put in this situation again. Oh, my God! So the gospel does. It gives you an identity that supersedes Christ. Okay, a quick, quick question about Gabriel. What, what kind of marks the, uh, would he have? That, would people just be able to tell on the street that he wasn't Dinka? Um, yeah, yeah. Actually, you know, I mentioned the Dinka and the Nuer are brothers. What do, what do you mean? Historically. Okay. So they are very similar in their tribes. So actually, a lot of the New Air have six scars, too. Uh. But they also, depending on your region, what Gabriel's face is covered in is they look like dots. And what has happened there is they take a thorn and they put it into the skin and lift it up, slice it a little bit, and then put ash in there. So he's got raised dots all over his cheeks and his chin all over as long as well as the six lines across his forehead so they know yes yeah wow that's a i mean i think that's a demonstration of the earlier question is do you have hope or see that that identity can be um yeah that christ identity can supersede but i think it's a also a clear demonstration of a love for an enemy 
because that enemy, it doesn't have to be your enemy because they specifically did something to you. I think that's the way we think of enemy because we can be very individualistic, but enemies can be just entire tribes or entire families, feuds, um, and to show that amount of love for the enemy. What did that, what kind of effect did that have on the rest of the students in the Bible school? I, I haven't been able to be in contact with a lot of them. Since the war, we've been out of the country and haven't actually had contact with a lot of the students. All right, this week's sponsors. CIU. CIU. CIU educates people from a bib- biblical biblical world review world view world world view CIU educates people from a biblical world view to impact the nations with the message of Christ All right so that was uh, our interview with Brady um, we decided to make this into two parts because the stories and he's about to just unleash a storm a, sto- a visceral storm of story. I don't think we had any idea what we were getting into at the beginning, and we just seeing all the stuff about identity and what God is doing in Sudan has been so good that we said, all right, we have to stop here and make this a two-parter. And so we ended with um, he hasn't been uh, back, and so they had to leave the country. And so we're going to pick up there with what ministry they were doing and what caused them to leave and what they're expecting to see when they come back.